This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. A few items on our plate. Item number one. Michigan Information Research Service, MERS newsletters, it's called, has come up with an interesting study over the past two decades saying that nearly a third of all the bills signed into law this year, this past year, 2019, were sponsored by minority Democrats in the House and Senate. Now, that is the highest percentage in 20 years for the minority to have that many bills signed into law by the governor. Specifically, it was 28.6%. It wasn't 33%, but it's almost a third, and that's much higher than the percentage in previous years, uh, which means that majority Republicans in the House and Senate had to be willing to put these Democratic-sponsored bills on the agenda get them reported out of committee through the House and Senate and to the governor, which says something about bipartisanship, doesn't it? In these days when we claim or the news media is telling us that everything in the country is polarized and the two parties don't get along in Washington and in Lansing, uh, they don't get along on certain key issues. That's true, but it shows that they can work together together. And so I think this is a heartening statistic. Item number two, the Larry Inman recall effort up in Traverse City. State Representative Larry Inman, who I think is everybody in Michigan who follows politics and government knows, was indicted by the federal government on three charges of lying to the FBI, of attempted bribery and attempted extortion, And he was cleared in a federal trial last month in Grand Rapids of the charge of lying to the FBI. But there was a hung jury on the other two charges. And so there was declared by the judge a mistrial. And it's unclear right now going forward what's going to happen. Now, in connection with all this, uh, two missed deadlines happened in connection to State Representative Larry Inman. One of these missed deadlines, I would say, was deliberate, and the other was the result of incompetence. Uh, The first missed deadline was there is a date by which time an incumbent subject to recall can say, I will not stand for recall. Um, I will allow my party, in this case the Republican Party for Larry Inman, can choose another nominee. Well, that deadline was missed by Larry Inman, I think deliberately, because I don't think he and his attorney think that the charges against him are going to be refiled, or if they are, that uh, he will be convicted. Or there is every reason to believe that the recall petitions themselves will not be and 
so far at least, they have not been declared legal. Uh, First of all, because of wording in the petition, now they seem to have cleared that hurdle. The Supreme Court said the wording, even though words were left out of the petition, uh, initially the petitions were rejected by the state, but now the Supreme Court says that's okay. But here's the problem. 105 signatures short of the minimum to qualify for the ballot. That is where things stand right now. And there's another deadline that the petitioners, the people who want to recall, had to meet uh, to challenge the ruling of the Board of State canvassers that the petitions lacked the required minimum number of signatures. Now, the petitioners are claiming uh, they may challenge that in court as well. So we'll have to see what happens there. We'll have to see whether 105 more signatures can be found that will make the signatures and the required minimum threshold met going forward. But still a lot of uncertainty in connection with Larry Inman. He has not had his office staff restored The Speaker of the House, Lee Chatfield, has not honored State Representative Larry Inman's request to have his staff back, to let him get in his office, open his office, run as a full-time state representative. He's kind of in limbo. He shows up for sessions. He casts votes. But he really has no support system at this point. Whether that's going to last all through 2020, we'll have to wait and see. Here are some rankings. This is item number three, also from MERS, Michigan Information Research Service newsletter. They said last year, analyzing all roll call votes, that Representative Steve Johnson, a Republican of Wayland on the west side of the state, was the most conservative member in the House. He's a Republican. And the most liberal was predictably a Detroit Democrat, LaTanya Garrett, she was rated most liberal. Uh, MERS also declared State Senator Peter Lucido Senator of the Year for his accomplishments. He got nine bills enacted into law. That was the most by any senator. And uh, for that matter, Aaron Miller, I'll just mention parenthetically, in the House Uh, State Representative Republican from Sturgis, he got six bills signed into law. He had the most in the House. He was not named House Member of the Year, however. The Speaker of the House was Lee Chatfield, Republican of Levering, up near the Straits of Mackinac, the Speaker of the House, youngest Speaker supposedly in Michigan history. He's 31 years old. He was named House Member of the Year. Democrat of the Year overall, House and Senate, was Curtis Hertel Jr. This is the second straight year he was declared by MERS to be Democrat of the Year, primarily, I would say, because of his role as a conduit or moderator or facilitator between Governor Gretchen Whitmer member of his party and the majority leadership, particularly in the Senate, Republican Majority Leader Mike Shirky. Also, Curtis Hertel Jr. was instrumental in getting 
votes for the gambling package through the Senate. Also, uh, item number four, reports came out at the end of the year. Census figures are in. The state of Michigan grew by only, get this, 2,800 people last year. And that was the second lowest growth rate in Michigan in this past decade. Now, Michigan right now has just under 10 million people. I think it has 9,982,000, give or take a few people. So about 18,000 short of 10 million. The high point, by the way, for Michigan was back in 2004. So we're talking at this point 16 years ago, Michigan had some 10,055,000 people at that time, but then the recession came and Michigan was either the only state or one of two states, Rhode Island I think may have been the other, that actually lost population between the year 2000 and 2010, and we dipped below 10 million. Now we've been slowly inching our way back up, and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes with the state demographer about Michigan's population trends, where they've been, and where they're going. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back and we are pleased to have with us Eric Guthrie. He is the state demographer. He is the official state of Michigan demographer. Eric Guthrie, welcome to The Political Insider. Thank you very much for having me. Well, tell us, first of all, what is a demographer? I mean, what do you do? Study population trends? Is that really what your job is about mainly? Um, I study population trends. I study the dispersion and composition of the population. I really um, work to make sure that people in Michigan are making decisions based on data and based on um, actual circumstances um, that exist in the real world so that we can um, apply our limited resources in the most effective way. How long have you been the state demographer? I have been the state demographer since 2014, so just over um, yeah. five, lot, five and a half years now. A lot of experience. Well, tell us, what is the situation in Michigan? Uh, I, we read the article, I think, in the Detroit Free Press the other day reporting on the latest census figures for 2019. But just give us your impression of what Michigan has done in terms of population over the last decade or more and, and what, what it looks like for the future. So over the last decade, Michigan's population has been increasing. It's been increasing um, slowly, um, but that is a better circumstance than we experienced in the previous decade when Michigan was the only state to lose population between the 2000 and the 2010 census. So the fact that we are increasing in population is a good thing and a positive sign, but we are increasing slowly. And and that is um, 
really because we are seeing the effects of uh, decreased fertility, uh, which is a, a long-term trend that the entire nation has been experiencing. And we're also being constrained by um, negative net migration. So we're seeing more people leaving the state and coming to the state. Some of that is offset by our positive gains in international um, migration, which kind of lessens the loss to other states. But for uh, many years in this decade, we've seen um, that total net statistic be negative, which is, is really constraining our growth. Yeah, as I read the figures over the last decade, I mean, yes, we are increasing population, as you say, slowly. But, you know, there's not a trend where from one year to the next we get bigger gains. Like, for instance, I believe, you correct me if I'm wrong, 2019 was the second lowest increase we had in the last decade. I mean, I think we only netted 2,800 people about, didn't we, last year? A little less than 2,800, I believe, but yeah, it was the smallest um, gain uh, in the data set that we can see. Um, it's also, you know, in comparison to the previous two years where we saw larger gains, we were returning to a situation of negative net migration. So if we look at the previous two years, which had larger gains, we, we saw positive net migration. So we saw more people coming to the state and leaving. Now, the caveat to that is the reason we saw positive net migration is because our international migration on net was large enough to offset the losses to other states because at least in, in this current decade, Michigan has lost more people to other states than we've gained uh, in every year in the, in the period. So the, the years that we've seen positive net migration is because our international migration has been strong enough to offset those losses. You probably look at other states, too. I mean, all through what might be called either the Frost Belt or the Rust Belt. I mean, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, even Indiana. I mean, they've all been struggling in terms of population for a couple of decades, maybe more. Uh, mm -hmm. Is Michigan different in any respect from any of these other states, or are they all experiencing pretty much the same phenomenon, like lower fertility rates, losing in the battle for migration? What? Yeah. Well, I think the, that's that's broadly true. I mean, every state has some something a little bit different in terms of the population dynamics, and Michigan has definitely has its, its positives over other states. Um, but we, we have... We do share the fact that, you know, with every everywhere, in the, well, almost everywhere in the nation, uh, uh, seeing these, these birth rates declining. Um, and at some point, we're going to cross the, the mark, and, and especially when we uh, consider we have a very large generation that is moving into the uh, later stages of later years of life. Um, we're going to start seeing a situation, at least for some years, we're going to see more deaths than births. So any population increases are going to have to come from uh, migration. But broadly speaking, all the states in the, in the region you talked about have been losing population to domestic migration, and all the states have been, have been seeing declines in fertility rates. That's really a long-term trend. So uh, if nothing stands out as being something that, that we can point to, that Michigan is, is, is radically different in population dynamics from its neighbors in the, in, in the region. Now, what are some of the other things that the statistics tell you? Like, uh, we are evidently an aging state. Um, and are there shifts of population within the state? Are some areas growing fairly well uh, while others are plummeting? Uh, how, how about the movement of people within Michigan? Well, we, 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 we can get those an idea of, of what the population looks like. So the, the, the release that, that uh, kind of sparked our conversation was just total population estimates 
um, uh, for the state and for the nation. So we can't get it from that data set. But if we look at other data sets that the Census Bureau publishes, for example, the American Community Survey, uh, we can see that um, the median ages for various parts of the states uh, are different. So we're younger in the uh, southern part of, of, of the state, so up to about the Saginaw Bay, uh, a line, if you draw a line from east to west across the state, um, from the Saginaw Bay to the west part of the, the state, if you, everything south of that is going to be larger than, than, than the places north of that. Um, we see uh, migration that, that is occurring um, from rural areas to, to more urban areas, um, and, and these are, are things that are um, not specific to any one area, just more, more general trends. Uh, as far as the state being uh, a little bit older, we, we do see that Michigan's median age is a little bit older than the nation's median age, and that is probably going to have us crossing that line that I mentioned earlier where we're going to probably see natural decline arrive in Michigan before we see natural decline um, arrive in the nation. In the nation, it is projected to occur around 2050 or so. We're expecting that to occur a little bit earlier in Michigan. So. There are a variety of things that we can glean from these data about all parts of the state. This particular release is just the first release in the calculation estimate series, so we don't get as much detail. We'll get more detail in June when the age of sex detail for all the counties is released from this data set. Yeah, looking back in history, could anybody have predicted, let's say, 1950, 1960, when Michigan was really kind of still booming and growing, um, that this long-term trend would have developed uh, as it has, where all these raw, you know, frost belt and snow belt states uh, started to suffer population either loss or stagnation, while the South started to boom. I mean, was, did you have you ever read anything historically where people were making predictions, demographers like you, let's say in 1950 or 60, about what was going to happen? You know, if we go back that far, we're, we're probably not going to see predictions that are going to match what the, the current outcomes are. So in, in the 50s and 60s, we're, we're actually seeing increasing birth rates, and a lot of the migration lines are actually going the other direction. People were migrating to the north. Um, so, you know, I don't think that we would have seen somebody predicting the situation that we have currently. Um, you know, we're, we're also talking about, when you talk about you know, comparing back to the 50s or 60s, something, you know, uh, a projection period that had been over 60 years long. So that, that's a little bit longer than we tend to project out. But no, we really wouldn't have been able to project from that point to now. Right. Listen, you've given us a great overview. Eric Guthrie, the state demographer, thank you so much for being on The Political Insider. Happy to be here. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned and we are fortunate to have State Representative Brant Iden, Republican of, I believe it's Ashtamo Township. Is that correct? In the Kalamazoo area, Representative Iden. Hey, good morning. How are you? That's correct. South Kalamazoo County. Well, you are the man when it comes to gambling reform and or expansion in Michigan. You were the main mover in the legislature this past year of a huge, I think it's nine bill package that passed the legislature and was signed into law by Governor Gretchen Whitmer, similar to what you accomplished 
a year earlier, but it was vetoed by Governor Rick Snyder on his way out the door, and you had to kind of sit back down and make some adjustments and fine-tune a few things and send a similar package back to Governor Whitmer. You tell me how different is what you got enacted now from what you sent Governor Snyder a year ago. Anything substantial? Well, you're absolutely right, Bill. You know, it's been four years in the making uh, since I've been working on this package, and it's been 23 years since any uh, substantive reforms on gaming in the state. So uh, very excited, obviously. You're correct. At the end of last year, I sent a very similar bill package to Governor Rick Steiner. Now, one of the key differences was that that bill package did not include sports betting. It referenced uh, mobile sports betting if gaming control were to establish uh, rules for that, but it did not have a specific statute for it. And so this bill package actually included three bills which dealt with sports betting in particular, both uh, retail, so bricks and mortar, where you can walk into the casino and place your sports bet, as well as online sports betting, so you'll be able to do it from, uh, for example, your mobile device as well. So that was a big uh, big component of this package, and obviously something that's sweeping the nation right now. As you look at other states uh, that have been dealing with this, uh, Michigan is the 12th state to come online now with uh, sports betting, and uh, it's very exciting, very exciting bringing that um, uh, bringing this sort of out of the black market and being able to, you know, regulate it and tax it is a huge win, I think, for uh, the citizens of the state. Yeah, from your point of view, probably this package that was enacted right now is better than the one that Snyder vetoed a year ago, right? I agree with that. I agree with that. I think it's more comprehensive. I think it's got a better regulatory structure in it. I mean, obviously, the biggest negotiating point over the course of the past year with the new administration was on the tax rate. Uh, it's higher than where I started and where I would have liked to have seen it. But at the end of the day, it's all negotiation. And I do think, though, that, that overall, this provides for more options for citizens. And I think it does provide a better regulatory framework. So I'd agree with that. Taxes are a little high, but, you know, you can always work on that in the future, right? <laughs> right, exactly. You can always come back and fine-tune things. Um, Representative Biden, I want to ask you about the component of this package that is probably the least noticed, uh, maybe you could argue least important, it involves horse racing. Now, horse racing, as you know, as a student of gaming in Michigan, back in 1933 was legalized horse racing. And for decades, that was the only way you could really gamble legally in Michigan. It was the only game in town. Well, then it was overtaken by the lottery, by Indian casinos, by the three Detroit casinos, all sorts of other stuff. And horse racing has really taken a beating to the point where at one time there were seven horse racing tracks in Michigan, thoroughbred and standard bred. Now we're down to one. <laughs> and uh, there was something in this package for horse racing. What was it? And is there anything left to be done to further help horse racing? Sure. So, you know, obviously this was a key component for a, a lot of my colleagues we're very focused on the agricultural industry. And as you know, Bill, we've had this discussion in Michigan over the course of a number of decades now as it relates to trying to revive that industry. I'm not sure that the bill that we passed will do that, but I do think it gives us a good framework. So what the bill does is it establishes what's called advanced deposit wagering, or otherwise known as ADW. 
And basically what that means is it's going to set up a structure where people will be able to bet on races from uh, basically online, from their mobile devices. And so you'll actually be able to, you don't have to go to the track to be able to tune in and and place a wager on uh, on a particular horse. Uh, and of course, this won't just be for tracks in Michigan. This would be you know nationwide to be able to do this. But the thought process is is that giving the the tracks the ability to have this integrate this new technology into their uh, system could perhaps potentially bring in some new revenue. Now, I think that um, you know it remains to be seen. I supported the bill. We talked about it a lot. Um, I don't know if this will revive the industry or not. I think that uh, it may be too little too late, unfortunately. But I do support the industry, and I certainly hope that they can make a make a go of it. Well, now, there was a piece of what horse racing wanted that was missing in the final package, and I think there's a kind of what you might call trailer bill sponsored by State Senator Jim Ananick, the Democratic leader in the state Senate. It's gotten through the Senate. It's over in the House. What is that? So that bill deals with uh, historic uh, horse racing, and this is something that you've seen uh, in other states. It's big in Kentucky. In fact, uh, if you go to Churchill Downs, they have uh, basically a whole area, Churchill Downs in Louisville, where you can do historic racing. And uh, the pitch is basically it's a machine uh, where you can bet on uh, certain uh, certain horses, and you don't know the outcome, and it's sort of a random generator and many uh, have argued in the past, you know, this bill had formally made it to Governor Rick Snyder, I believe, back in 2010 or 2011. He did veto the bill. Uh, some would argue it, it, the machine replicates a slot machine, and that could be considered an expansion of gaming. I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's, a, you know, a decision that the courts would have to make. Uh, obviously, the former governor did veto that bill, but he vetoed mine as well. I mean, I think that the House is going to take a a good look at that bill. Uh, I think uh, we're going to analyze it, you know, debate it. It's still in the regulatory reform committee, but I think it's worth the additional conversation uh, as to whether or not this is something that uh, you know could certainly generate additional revenue to uh, to help the gaming, uh, help the uh, horse racing industry. You know, I'd be interested in at least taking a look at it. When we mention expansion of gambling, we should note that in 2004 there was a ballot proposal statewide that banned the expansion of racing unless there was a statewide referendum on it and also a local referendum on wherever this expansion of horse racing might occur, which made it almost impossible for racetracks to really do many of the things that horse tracks are able to do in other states. And I think you noted that, you know, there's some question about whether – what you just described is really going to pass constitutional muster if it's ever challenged in court, if it was enacted, right? That's correct. That would that would be the debate. I mean, I, I've, I've looked at that, uh, and, of course, now it's a, a decade old almost, but that, that veto letter from Snyder back then and at the end of 10 or 11, and I forget now, but basically it did reference that. And, and the, the thought process is, is this an expansion of gaming? Uh, does this pass uh, uh, constitutional muster uh, to be able to have this enacted? And I think that that's a debate that would likely have to go to the courts in the uh, in the event that the legislature uh, passed uh, the legislation and that it were signed into law. I mean, I think that the you know there's a substantive difference in my opinion between what we passed. Uh, 
and 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 that particular issue. And the reason is is because I, I've always made the case that what we did was just simply take. Uh, the current structure that we have in Michigan, the current Class Three games that are offered, and the one that the United States Supreme Court is now considered a Class Three game, which is sports betting, and made that available to our citizens via a new platform. So I've always said this really doesn't, um, um, you know, it, this isn't an, an expansion so much as it is just basically establishing a regulatory practice for something, A, that's already going on in the marketplace, and be something that casinos are already allowed to do. And I think that's why we saw, you know, so many tribes come on support of this legislation. And that's why, you know, we can make the case that it's not necessarily an expansion because you're not bringing any new games to the state of Michigan. Yeah, when you talk about um, gambling on historic races, let me make sure I understand how that works. Sure. You mean, yeah. in other words, they they... Let's get back to that in a minute. We've uh, got to okay. take a break right here. We'll come back to that and then let you talk about the real meat of the package. We'll be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back with Representative Brant Iden, Republican of Oshtemo Township near Kalamazoo. He is the main man when it comes to expansion and reform of legal gaming in Michigan. A huge nine-bill package, one of the signature accomplishments of the legislature, signed into law by Governor Gretchen Whitmer at the end of the year. We were talking about Horse racing is a very minor part of this package, and he was about to explain how people can actually bet on historic races if that was to be enacted. Now, that's not part of the package that's now law, but there's another bill sponsored by State Senator Jim Ananick, Democrat of Flint, that is working its way through the legislature that could pass, that could allow that. So what do you say, Representative Brand Iden? So, yeah, basically, the historic racing machine is a is you walk into a facility and these, these races would be playing on a, uh, on a terminal, if you will, these older races. And they would actually be races that <laughs> did formally occur in the past. But instead of being able to select your horse, you would be given a random horse. And your horse may or may not obviously finish uh, in, in first, second, or third place. But you, you'd be able to, you know, say, okay, I'd like to bet, you know, a, a show place horse, and then it randomly generates your horse for you, which may or may not be the winner. So some would argue that that is a random number generator similar to a slot machine or something like that. And I think that's where the debate comes in as to whether or not this would be considered an expansion or not. Yeah, I think one of the uh, issues for Senator Ananick is that Am West, which is a huge company that wants to revive Sports Creek Racetrack in his district in Genesee County, has said we've got to have that in addition to advanced deposit wagering or we're not going to redevelop uh, Sports Creek. So, you know, I think that's why it's a big deal, right? Yeah, there's been a, a lot of debate as to, you know, what is needed to sort of revive the, the racetracks. And, you know, obviously, 
obviously those operators are looking for other opportunities outside of just horse racing, recognizing that they can't just survive on that. And I think this is one of the ideas that they have. Let's get to the meat of the package, internet gambling, uh, fantasy contests. That's something else uh, we haven't talked about. You mentioned sports betting earlier, but that's the real meat of this incredible nine-bill package that was enacted into law. Can you go through that a little bit and just explain what people can expect? And by the way, when it looks like this might really kick in, will it kick in in time for the NCAA uh, basketball tournament in March or not? Yeah, absolutely. So, so you're right. So the, the, uh, one of the other bills that, that was really comprehensive and really the main bill that I have been working on for the past four years was this internet piece. And basically it allowed uh, both tribal casinos, so that's 23 tribal casinos in the state of Michigan, as well as the three commercial casinos in the city of Detroit, to be able to uh, start a website, and people could go to that particular website. So you could take uh, Firekeepers in Battle Creek or MGM in Detroit. You could go to their website and actually play the games that they offer inside the casino online. Those games would be blackjack, poker, uh, roulette, slots. Um, whatever it happened to be, your game of choice, you would be able to actually get on a portal through the casino and, and play those, those games. Um, this is obviously something that we know already exists in the marketplace. We'll do this offshore already. And this is simply regulating an environment that already exists uh, for those games to be played and keeps up with technology. As I mentioned when we started, you know, the, the, the gaming laws in the state have not been reformed in over 23 years. And so these are some major new advancements that I believe allow uh, Michigan to capitalize on revenue that we're missing out on, as well as most importantly, provide for consumer protections that are needed within the marketplace to protect people that are underage, for example, or people that have gaming addiction. We can do that now through uh, websites and through the technology that exists, uh, such as facial recognition that you already have on your cell phone. These are the types of products that will be utilized to be able to make sure that we're protecting consumers when they play these games online. So that's one of the big pieces. Obviously, the second piece uh, is the sports betting piece. Again, as I mentioned, you'll be able to bet on sports uh, either at a, a physical a sports book, something similar to what you've seen in Nevada, perhaps, a retail operation where you walk into one of the casinos, place a bet on your favorite sports team, get a ticket, you get, you know, you win that game, you'll be able to cash your ticket in and, and, and obviously win. Uh, or you'll also be able to do it uh, online as well, either via your computer or mobile device, which is uh, obviously very prevalent in like Jersey, which came online first, and they've seen millions of dollars in new revenue generated from being able to operate online with sports betting. And then that other piece you mentioned, Bill, which is the fantasy sports piece, and people are familiar with this if they have, a, you know, they play with their buddies in a fantasy football league or something like that. This doesn't deal with that so much as this focuses on regulating and taxing the daily fantasy games. So people who participate in these daily games online with the, the, uh, the players or teams for money uh, on a regular basis. Now, those are the games that are going to be taxed, not the, uh, not the games that you play with your buddies when you put your football fantasy league together for the year. That, that, that's still, you're going to be able to operate that separately on your own. These are the major players like FanDuel and DraftKings that come into a market and set up these daily games for money. Now, they're going to be taxed under this new regulation as well. So 
you know, uh, when can we see this come online? Uh, my goal is, uh, you know, it's all up to, to gaming control. However, I'd like to see this be up and ready by uh, the Big Ten basketball tournament or March Madness, obviously, the NCAA tournament. You know, it's a huge opportunity for Michigan to capitalize on some revenue, especially if we've got a couple of our teams in there, Michigan or Michigan State. We should be able to see some major revenue dollars gained from that. So, you know, hopefully in the next three months, you may see that come online. What about taxes and revenue? What are the tax rates for these various uh, different forms of gambling, and how much revenue can the state expect? So, uh, now, remember, here's an important part. Just the operator pays the taxes. So this isn't the individual citizen that's going to be taxed on their ticket or anything like that. And the operator pays on uh, our losses or otherwise known as their winnings or profits. That's what they pay on. So for sports betting, they're going to pay about 8.5%. And for uh, Internet gaming, such as the, the poker, roulette, blackjack I mentioned earlier, that's going to be up closer to 20 23%, depending. And now my bill originally started at 8% for both of those. We negotiated with the governor. She was looking to capitalize on more revenue for those. And uh, so that's why you saw such a large increase from the 8% all the way up to the 23% in the one Internet bill. But a lot of revenue there to capture. I believe the first year we could see somewhere between 100 and 150 million with these two efforts combined, and I only think it goes up from there. I mean, some of these other states, uh, New Jersey is now overtaking uh, or almost overtaking Nevada in sports wagering, and uh, we could, uh, you know, we could see upwards of a couple hundred million dollars in very short order if we do this the right way. Is the lottery going to be hurt? That's what Governor Snyder and Governor Whitmer both worried about. But you think you addressed that problem? I believe we did. Obviously, that was that was the crux of, of both governors' argument against this. And Governor Whitmer uh, negotiated with us, and that's why we were able to come up on the tax rate to be able to compensate for any potential losses to the I lottery. But what I would say, and, and it's very important, what we're looking at is losses just to the Internet-based lottery that we have in the state. And I would argue that uh, both New, uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania have an Internet uh, lottery or robust lottery, and both of those are growing uh, year after year combined with Internet gaming. So I don't think we're going to see any impact to the iLottery. I think it's two different types of players, or people play both. And I think that this is going to be a net positive win for the state. And remember, one of uh, Governor Whitmer's key items was that this money be directed towards education. And so these dollars will go directly into that school aid fund uh, every year. What about problem gambling, gambling addiction? Is that addressed in any of these bills? It is. It is. Uh, you know, a couple of things I would say to that. First and foremost, we've, we've set aside $2 million in additional revenue that's going to go directly to problem gaming, helping people with uh, you know, their, their addiction issues. But most importantly, I think, and this is where I think the technology really comes into play with consumer protections, that the unique technology that we have out there, we can regulate how people play now. So before, when this was illegal and people were playing off, offshore, playing in these China websites, or they're playing offshore in the Dominican Republic, this was the Wild West. No one was regulating this. Now, you play through a regulated marketplace like MGM or Firekeepers app, for example, uh, there's going to be facial recognition. There's going to be uh, tracking your bets. If you're, bet- if you're betting $100, $100, $100, and then all of a sudden you're betting 5000 5000 the casino is going to be able to say, wait a minute, I think there's something going on with this individual, and they can turn off, they can turn it off. 
And so they're going to be able to monitor how these people play. And I think in the end, we're going to be able to regulate addiction even better than we were before. Thank you very much. State Representative Brant Iden, Republican of Ostomo Township, the kingpin behind the reform and expansion of gambling in Michigan. You've been a great guest. You've explained it all or pretty much everything that I could think of to ask. Thank you. You bet. Thanks, Bill. Great being on. We'll be back next week.